Man, how's everybody doing? That's so good, man. Oh, he holds it all together. I told Beth, I, I knew they were doing that song, and I don't know what it is about that one, but that, that one does, that one gets to me. I said, baby, you know, he might hold it all together, but I'm not going to be able to hold it together when we sing it. Uh, it's so good. It, what, a, what a truth to hold on to, that he's been God for a long time, no matter where we are, no matter what's going on. And, you know, pastoring this church, especially in the season we've been in, but um, outside of the, the pandemic, just the, the situations and the hardships that people have walked through in our church um, and in our community, are, uh, it just seems like it's every, it's every day. There's, there's another phone call. There's another email. Um, but man, I've seen outside of that, that realm, God's faithfulness has, has risen above that and done so much more, even with those, just the testimonies of anchors that are you know, becoming a part of the family in our church. It's incredible just to know some of the stories and the people that are finding hope despite circumstantial issues uh, and who God is and, and um, you, know, what he's, you know, what he's doing. Um, you know, if you got your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be over the boundary of 21 and 22. Um, and that is, I mean, this is an amazing passage. You know what? I have the absolute wrong notes right here. You know, that happens sometimes. Let me see if this is it. Nope, I don't have the right ones. You know what? I can. We can wing it. <laughs> He's got my notes. Look at that. Thank you. Look at that. That's last week. It's fantastic. I was about to, and we could have gone for two hours if I had no notes. <laughs> I, I kid you not. I told Beth my, my notes have been like shorter each week, and I've preached longer, and I apologize for that. I don't know what it is. It's like usually they're about five pages, and then, you know, if, I get, if, my, if it's three pages, you can add ten minutes. I have no idea why that happens. But and th- this passage is amazing. If you've been with us, you've kind of walked with us through the, 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 just the movement of the church and how it's exploded. And it's so relevant to us because we are in this, you know, if you kind of go through the, the revolutions of what, what's happening in Scripture, all leading to the pinnacle and the center of history with the cross of Jesus Christ, where it all happens. Everything leads to that redemptive moment where blood is poured out on Mount Calvary. But then out of that, that soil of his sacrifice and his death, burial, and his resurrection, the church is born miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit after he's ascended. And people are moving in power, and amazing things are taking place. Amazing people are becoming connected to this thing called the way, which is Christianity, what we see in, in Acts. And we're all the way in this zone of Acts 21 and Acts 22, where the Apostle Paul, we said last week, he's, he was going back to Jerusalem despite knowing through the power of the Spirit, and because people have told him he's had... Actually, in the beginning of Acts 21, Agabus, who is like a modern-day prophet at the time, is telling him, hey, I've seen a vision. I don't, you can do, do with this what you want, which I like that as a prophet. He's not trying to impose his will. He's just saying, this is what, I, what God has shown me. Is he's shown me a vision of you being chained on both sides. Well, that's good news. But he goes to Jerusalem anyway, and that's where he, where he ends up. And I was thinking about... This is the, the first time we see Paul having to really defend himself. Like he's run and dodged and said some things. He's, we had the riot at Ephesus, but being pinned down the way he's pinned down here is the beginning of him being in prison a lot, him being abused a lot and beat a lot for his faith. And when we, this is where we begin to see the Apostle Paul defend himself. And we talked a few, few weeks ago about this idea of being right. And I think when we 
You ever, you know, know the, that, that term defending your faith, being able to defend your faith? And I just thought about what we spoke about weeks ago about this idea of being right or feeling like we're right. Like we, none of us want to be wrong, but we're okay with being wrong. We're just not okay with finding out that we're wrong. Like, I mean, that's just one of those things. Like just being wrong in and of itself doesn't really do anything. We can, we can be wrong and not know about it. Ignorance is bliss and we're fine being wrong. But as soon as somebody calls us on it and we realize we're wrong, it's we're ashamed. We, we, we defend ourselves in that way. We want to prove ourselves right. And the Apostle Paul's in a place in Jerusalem where he's beginning to this process of how am I going to defend myself? What's it going to look like to defend my actions and defend what's happened in this last season of my life? Because he's been away from Jerusalem for quite some time and people have formulated their idea of what this thing is called Christianity. And I feel like in our culture, people do the same thing. Outside of the church, outside of church culture and the church family, people outside these walls in politics and in the world and in the United States of America have formulated their idea of what the church is, what Christianity is, what's the, what's the brand of Christianity. We've talked many times, some people think great things about Christianity, but there's a lot of people that have an idea, have put a brand on what they believe Christianity is causing in our country, what, what people that believe in what we believe in are leaning towards and what it means for the rest of our culture. And a lot of those things are negative and there's a lot of attacks that are happening uh, in, our, in our life. And I just thought about this idea of defending and what we do as human beings. I remember several years ago, I was, uh, was working for uh, one of my best friends, Darren Vinger. I just saw him in the back. He's wearing shorts because I said, it's February, man. You can't wear shorts. He's like, dude, it's 70 plus degrees outside. Um, but we used to work together. He was my, one of my business partners. I was a, a systems analyst and an engineer, had a, a small IBM business partnership, did um, programming for warehouse distribution companies. So we transitioned people off of old antiquated software, put them on our wonderful new software. And we had a client out in Texas. We had just brought them live. It spent probably a better part of a year um, moving their entire company off of where they were and on their, their new software. I won't get into all the details. I could geek out because I still love technology. But we had just gotten them to that place. And I had written uh, several modules um, in the software package. And one of them was the shipping module. And after a few days, they realized for whatever reason, there was some, they were losing lots of money that should have been charged back to the customer in the shipping department. It was happening overnight. And they zeroed in on the fact that hey, there's this portion, we don't know what it is, but we're losing. And I don't want to tell you just how much, but it was a lot of money. Like every single day, they were, they were bleeding money, enough that they had a, a meeting at eight o'clock every morning and a conference call with us back in Jacksonville from Texas with the, the CFO, the CEO, and the CTO going, what's happening? Now, just to give you some context, you can't just punt and go back to the old software. I mean, there's just not, that's not even an, an option to do that, which you would think, okay, we're just going to give the, give the, the software back, you know, and, and we'll, we'll try again with some new software. I mean, this is a whole different level of, of like what, what we're doing. You can't go backwards. And so all, all, all the arrows begin to point at who? At me. Who wrote the shipping module? Why is it broken and why are we losing money every single day? And I mean, I'm just sitting there and I mean, my gut, I mean, I just, I remember the anxiety and the stress immediately is just on me and I'm just absolutely overcome by it. And I'm just thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get booted out of my company. This is how you get fired. You know what I mean? You've got a multi-million dollar company. They've gone and transitioned into the software. You actually wrote the module that's losing them hundreds of thousands of dollars every day. So I'm in this position 
And they're all looking at me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to scramble and prove that I did not break this, right? So I start checking everything and it all works the way that it's supposed to. Every line of code, I'm watching it process. I'm watching people do shipping throughout the day. I'm kind of checking the warehouse and seeing what everybody's doing. But it seems as though things are happening at night. So probably the third or fourth 8 a.m. meeting, I said, hey, can I have access to all of the computers in the warehouse at night where I can dial into those computers and I can watch people work? You know, technology's cool. You can sit there, I can watch the mouse clicks and see how the shipping people are doing their job because I'm wondering how this is happening. So night after night, I'm up all night watching people ship on their computer, just watching mouse clicks. I mean, you talk about mind numbing. I mean, it was, but I was like, so I was, in, I was sweating watching people going, he's doing it right and it's all calculating. And I got my calculator out, got my thing, watching the code process, doing the thing, checking my sheets, checking my compiled listing of code, looking at what's going on. I'm like, this all works. And I was absolutely wanting to die because every morning was the same, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. I mean, it just got more intense, more intense, more intense. After a few days, I, there, was, there was one computer at the corner of the warehouse, this one guy, and I really not looked and watched what he was doing as much, so I, I checked out what he was doing, and I noticed he was processing things a little bit different. You know how in computers you can process things a different way? Like, you watch somebody else work on their MacBook, and you're like, hey, I didn't know you could get to that file that way. You, you can do things different ways. Well, he was just doing things a different way, processing shipping. I looked, and he was clicking on a button, and I looked at that button on the screen. I'm like, I didn't create that button. Where did said button come from? So all of a sudden, I start looking into what he's doing, watching the processing, and I'm like, Bring! I see the, the shipping go berserk. And he doesn't know. He's just doing the thing, doing the picking list, shipping the product, and doing the stuff. I'm watching the miscalculation. I'm like, bingo! And I, I get into the code, and I start looking. And as a programmer, you would put your initials wherever all your modifications are if you modified somebody else's code. So I'm looking for my initials, D-E-H, behind this code. I'm like, I don't remember writing this. I don't remember seeing this. And all of a sudden, I see somebody else's initials. And I realized it's the CTO's initials back in Texas, the guy that's, you know, with the CFO, you know, the, he was a programmer also programmed in the same language I did. And he went in and just took the liberty of adding a little feature that he needed for his guy in the corner of the warehouse. You have no idea what happened to this moment at three o'clock in the morning when I found this. I mean, there was just like a dance that I broke out into. It was karate kid. I woke Beth up. It was just like, I mean, I could not believe it. And I couldn't wait for that moment in the morning to act like an eight-year-old and go, I didn't do it, you know, he did it, you know. Instead, I did the professional thing and I created like a full-on video of this guy shipping and watching the whole thing it was like slow-mo click. And then I pulled up all of the code. I said, I don't even know whose initials are, and then I was like, oh, it's, it's him. I just wanted to let you know, he did it, woo! I mean, <laughs> that's the way we defend ourselves. We can't wait to have proof that we are right and they are wrong. One of the most joyous moments in my life. And when I look at what we see, and we're thinking about defending the gospel. I see this. It's so funny. You look on social media. You watch what people do in their daily life when it comes to Christianity. We're so polarized in our culture. Like we have people on all ends of the spectrum in what they think and what they believe. Even people inside and outside the church are on different ends of the spectrum. And it all finds its way into this place of wondering how we're going to defend. And then there's the silent kind of majority that's in the middle that doesn't care as much about some of the crazy, you know, end issues that are polarized, that don't get on. But we're all sitting silently. Why? Because we're in cancel culture, media culture. Whatever we say is going to be, I mean, I've seen some of the most, people post 
benign things. And I mean, I'm talking about 600 comments. You're canceled. You know, you are. I mean, it's just like people would say, and I'm just like, I can't even parse that statement and find why that's a problem. So we're walking around as people. We're, we're called as a church to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that we've experienced in Jesus. How are we going to do that when we're tiptoeing and walking around on eggshells in the culture that we're in? So there's some fear when we think about this idea of evangelism or defending the gospel outside of the walls of the church and outside of our own community. So what does it look like for us? How do we get to that point where we can, we can prove to the world that it wasn't our button, it wasn't our problem, and that what we're talking about is something completely different? It's your fault, not our fault. Follow us to the, the, to the, to the mountaintop. How do we get to the point where we can lead people, anyone and everyone, into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus? Well, the problem is, and I think in my own mind, is that in our humanness and in our flesh, we take the word defending and it becomes a personal thing. We're trying to cover our own soft spots as opposed to fearlessly proclaiming the gospel like the Apostle Paul says. I want to, the thing that I pray about and I want people to pray for me is not to not to save me, not to rescue me, not to keep me safe, but that when I have an opportunity that I will fearlessly proclaim the gospel for which I'm in chains. He's like, I'm free from any and all men, but I become a slave to any and all that I might save some. He wasn't worried about the soft spots, but he did defend himself. But the way that he did it was so different. What's amazing about Paul in his most critical moments that we're going to read right here, he doesn't do what normal human beings do. But by the Spirit, he does present an irrefutable argument before the people in Jerusalem and before, before the Roman officials and the commander. So if you got your Bible, and we're in the boundary line between 21 and 22 in Acts, Paul's now back in Jerusalem. We talked about him leaving his, the, his, his boys back in Ephesus. All of his people, all of his kind of family members have been there in and around Ephesus for three years. And now he's traveling back. They warned him, said, you probably shouldn't go. But the Apostle Paul says, I am going. I know that there's going to be trouble there, but this is where God's calling me. This is where the Holy Spirit sent me. He's back in Jerusalem. He's greeted warmly by the, the people that are there, the, the disciples that are there. There are disciples in Jerusalem. James is there. He meets with James. Gets to share all the testimonies of all the things that have been happening over the last couple of years with the Gentiles, who the Apostle Paul was called to preach to. I mean, he's going all the way up from Jerusalem, up around the Horn, through what would be modern-day Turkey, down through Greece to Athens. I mean, we've kind of followed his missionary journey. Now he's come back and said, Man, the gospel is exploding everywhere, and everybody's celebrating. Now, the Jews that were Christians there were warning the Apostle Paul. They said, hey, we just want to let you know. The rumor is, and people don't really remember who you are because it's been 20 years. You've been, you, you've been a Christian for, for 20 years now. You, the the who you were has kind of faded away, and who you are now is what is prominent, which you're the one that's carrying the news, you know, everywhere that Jesus saves, that he is risen from the dead. And they said, the problem is, is everybody thinks that you, you don't believe anything about the Old Testament. You're trying to shut down the Old Testament, everything, everything that we believe about the Mosaic law, everything about the law is that they think that you are completely flushing all of their history, all of their culture, everything that they believe about God down the toilet. And they are angry about it. So you need to be careful. And so they, they come up with this plan. And remember, the Apostle Paul, it wasn't that he was ever, he wasn't against circumcision. He was just against imposing the, the, the Judaism law on the Gentiles. He basically just said, hey, if you, if you want to practice this, 
That's fine. If this is what your family's always done in terms of circumcision and what it means to you and how it represents God to you, continue to do those things. But don't impose that because that's not, that is not the law. The system was always pointing to the Savior. The Savior has come and everything has changed. He did not come to abolish the law, but to complete the law, right? So he, the Apostle Paul would go into certain regions. He was with Timothy earlier on. We read in the book of Acts. He, he told him, don't impose the law on the Gentiles. And then the, the next, over the next couple of weeks, he rolls into a new town with Timothy. He says, Timothy, bad news. You got to get circumcised so we don't ruffle any feathers. So he obeys the Jewish law simply because he wants to, as he says in Romans chapter 15, when at all possible, I want to be at peace with all people. He doesn't want to violate God's moral law in order to have peace. But he's like, there's certain things that we can do along the way that are going to keep us from ruffling feathers in every town that we go in. We don't have to uproot and revolt against every government. He actually sent letters to the Roman government and said, I just want you to know that we're not opposing the Roman government. And it was the most oppressive, horrible place to be and live in society at that time. I mean, they did horrible things. And the Apostle Paul said, look, we want to, in many ways, carry the gospel. We want that to explode, but not ruffle feathers. The Apostle Paul in this time, he's in a Jewish community in Jerusalem. They're thinking he doesn't, he disregards the Old Testament, which would be ridiculous because Jesus quoted the Old Testament probably more than anybody. So he takes a handful of Gentile brothers that have come with him that, would, that lived in the area and said, we're going to go through all the purification rites in the temple. Thinking that that will calm everybody down. Everybody's like, oh, he does regard the Old Testament. He goes in and does all that and it backfires. They flip out because they're like, we saw Paul in the temple and he had Gentiles with him. Beyond the outer wall, beyond the court of the women, he, he, he went beyond the court of the Gentiles into a place he should never have gone to do, do the purification rites with Gentiles and they were out of their mind. Like I said before, in the previous chapters, people get really upset when you take their elitism and you say it's for everybody. When you take somebody's position and they, they had their own positional authority as the Jews in Jerusalem and thought, we are the people of God. You are not. And the gospel said different. The gospel said, Jesus is for the whole wide world. Salvation is not just for the Jews. It is going to spread across the globe. The Jews didn't like that because they had this elitism. And the apostle Paul was dismantling that. So they flipped out. They went crazy and they drug him out into the street. They started to beat him furiously. And then the Roman soldiers who are supposed to keep peace in this region, they're like, you can have your religion, you can do your thing, but you guys got to stay peaceful. When riots broke out, they tried to do whatever they could outside of violence to shut it down. So they wanted to get the right people. They started talking to this person, this person. People are like, you know, this is what's going on. And then a different story would break out over here. No, this is what's going on. They couldn't get the right story. So they go to the commander and they say, hey, this guy is going to, he's caused a riot and he is going to get murdered in the streets and then things are really going to go berserk. You need to show up. So the commander shows up. They grab the apostle Paul and they chain him to two Roman soldiers. Just like Agabus said. And so he's walking and, and, and talking with the commander and the commander's having a conversation with the apostle Paul. And the apostle Paul says, do you mind if I have an opportunity to speak? And the Roman commander is actually surprised because the Apostle Paul can, can speak his language. He speaks in Koine Greek, and he's talking to him that way. And the commander says, I think that's probably the, the best idea right now is to, to let him defend himself. And so the Apostle Paul begins, and that's where we are in this particular passage as we cross the boundary line from 21 to 22. Paul's 
speaking to his brothers and fathers and the people that are surrounding him. And just notice that, that Paul's defense is not wrapped in his knowledge of what he knows. Now, he does say some things about who he was, but notice his defense is not to protect himself. It's different. In verse 22, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, which would be Hebrew, they became very quiet. They, they had forgotten. They didn't know who this guy was, really, other than the guy that's carrying the gospel. It's been 20 years since Saul, you know, persecuting Christians. So they hear the Aramaic and the Hebrew, and they're like, okay, what is the, who is this guy? He says, it says, then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of uh, Cilicia and brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel. Now, uh, Gamaliel. Now, this guy that he's talking about, they would all know. This guy was, I mean, he is was well-regarded. Like when everything would break down in Jerusalem, they would all go to the, this Jewish leader and he would, he would straighten things out. Very wise. And the Apostle Paul saying, I, I, I trained under this guy and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Now notice what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's not trying to defend his actions. He's trying to Get common ground with them. He's being, which is my first point today, he's being relatable. He's saying, I'm no different than you. And in our culture, when we think about defending our faith, I don't know, I think sometimes we have this separatist point of view, this us and them idea, when in reality, everything's level at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And there's an entire world out there where we always highlight how we're different in what we believe in our ideology, our politics, our religion. And we see, that's all we see. When in reality, like Gerald was singing today, just this idea that all of us understand what cancer, going through cancer is like if you've been through it. There's people on all different religious spectrums, but people can relate to pain. People can relate to how you know, the age of your kids. When, I've got, when I get around guys and, and, and people that have teenagers with my kids' age, I don't know that I, 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 laugh, I, I laugh harder then because they'll say two words and I'm like, <laughs> me too. I mean, we, we can relate. It doesn't matter what they believe and think about God, what they think. We've got 15-year-olds. We can relate. And we forget in our, in our defense of the gospel outside to find common ground with people. To get in that place with people and understand that, hey, walking through pain is the same for you as it is for me. Living in the area that we live is the same. I know some people that you know. I go to work just like you do. We all bleed the same on planet Earth because we all live on a sinful planet. And if you live long enough here, you will bleed and you will go through pain. We have relatable connective tissue with the world around us and he carefully lays common ground between him Self and them gets a little bit of leverage by saying, hey, I even know one of your historic leaders. He trained me. I don't want to put myself in a position saying I'm so different than you. I want you to know and understand. I get what you're doing. I did what you did. And he goes on in verse four. He says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest of all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from 
letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. The Apostle Paul, not only does he get into the place where he's relatable, but he has a repentant tone. He's repentant. He's humble. He doesn't come in defensive, like I'm trying to win something and do my happy dance later. He says, hey, I've done the things that you've done. I've walked down the road that you've walked down. I was a bad man. I was okay with murder in order to shut down the way. I was, I was okay. I watched horrible things. I watched Stephen as he looked into, into Jesus' eyes breathe his last as the first martyr. He, he owns his sin, this place of humility and repentance. And I think in defending what we believe as Christians, repentant humility is on short supply. I mean, I don't know that we do that. I think we... we, we more often we stand our ground, we, do, we, we, we draw a line because we're frustrated, we see, we, we can look at people. I mean, in our day and where we are, I mean, I'll just say it out loud, people look at people with masks and already draw lots of conclusions. Oh, they wear a mask while they're outdoors? Oh my gosh. And people freak out. Or vice versa. I mean, I've seen people like, you know, be, be judgmental and mock somebody because their, their mask slipped underneath their nose. We, we go berserk over a small thing. Now let's get deeper down to the actual religion and po politics ideology. We lack humility on all fronts. We should be the one, Aaron said it a few weeks ago as believers, because we are eternally approved of by the king of the universe. We should be the least offended people on the planet, but yet we stand in great offense to the culture that God's placed us in to reach out to and shine the bright light of Jesus to, the goodness of the ocean of grace to but yet we stand in anger. I will not. The Apostle Paul said, when it possible, I'm going to live at peace with people because that will provide me more opportunity to carry the beautiful ocean of grace, not rightness, to the world around me. Repentant humility. I mean, thank goodness the hound of heaven, Jesus, came after me. And for me to poke out my chest and believe I've got things all figured out and the rest of the world is just needs to look at my backside as I do the right thing, I've missed it. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Verse 6, he, he goes on. As he tells this story, he says, About noon I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light. So he's, he's telling them, I used to persecute Christians. In fact, I was on my way. To, to, to gather up a bunch of men and women and arrest them. And likely those people would die in prison. It says, about noon, as I came near Damascus, I was on my way there to do, do what, what I love doing, which was shut this thing down. Suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He, he cries out, who are you, Lord? And the response from the light, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. He says, get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. And my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light had blinded me. I love that he was led by the hand. Like he encountered Jesus 
And all of a sudden, this powerful man who was so highly regarded 20 years earlier, his servants were, were showing him the way because he had been blinded. You talk about a humbling moment for a guy that had it all together, a guy that had an amazing resume in his culture, and now he can't even see. I mean, that happens. When Jesus encounters sinful flesh sometimes, it rocks us to the core. But what we see here, and I love this, and this is what the Apostle Paul is wanting them to understand and wanting them to know, is not only, not only did he come in repentance, not only did he, did he have this relatable tone, but he also wanted them to know that he was relentlessly pursued. He encountered Jesus on the road to D Damascus. The hound of heaven came after him. This, this mercy the Apostle Paul didn't continue down the road of explaining to them all that he knew, that he had memorized the first five books of the Bible, that he knew pretty much the entire Old Testament, and he didn't go down the road of continually presenting his resume. He just said, hey, I know what it's like to be you because I was you. And then in humility, he begins to tell his story. He doesn't launch into uh, you know, any, any defense of what he believed. He begins to say, this is what happened to me. Because if you have a story of mercy and grace, then you have a story of mercy and grace to tell. I think we think we, it's all about understanding and knowing the Bible. We should know the word of God because we want to know God's voice. And we're in a relationship with him. But a lot of us don't share our faith because we're like, I don't have enough knowledge. I need a couple more. I need to audit a few more seminary courses before I open my mouth. The apostle Paul, who could have Taught seminary courses, doesn't go to the seminary course. What does he go to? This is my encounter with Jesus, and this is how it affected me. This is what has happened to me. And he wants them to know, even me, the one who persecuted Christians, the one who was murdering Christians, even me, he came after me. He forgave me. His mercy was shown to me. The hound of heaven did not give up on me. What does that say about you? What does that say about the whole planet? He's not giving up on us. As we sang today, he's the one holding it all together. We were made by and for him, and he's not letting us go. He's chasing us. Some of you, you're in here today. He's been chasing you. He's been after you. You're not here by accident. The hound of heaven is speaking right into your soul right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. You think you've gone too far. You think you've said too much. You think you don't deserve anything. And Jesus has come into this moment, not with a sword, but with his life poured out for you. The hound of heaven and the apostle Paul, he's coming in with his story. This is the irrefutable argument. Nobody can argue with this. It frustrates people sometimes because it's a faith-driven thing. They want to talk about the dinosaurs and you're like, all I can tell you is my life's been changed forever. Well, how are you going to argue with that? I mean, it's like telling somebody, I just ate at, at Pose the other night, and I usually get a burger, but I'm trying to eat a little more healthy, and, and I've talked about steak a lot and how I love steak, and it makes the vegans mad. It's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be nicer. I had yellowfin tuna, which I know is not vegan, but it's so good. It was amazing. There will be baby back ribs at the wedding feast of the lamb, I just want you to know. Um, I, and I might be there sooner than you because, you know, I don't eat well. But I, the yellowfin tuna... Tacos there, I, and I love tacos. People that know me, I love, I like it. Taco Lou, Flying Iguana. I like the different eclectic tacos. I like just straight up, you know, you know, any kind of taco, I love them. Right? Anybody taco people? You live at the beach, love tacos. They're, they're yellowfin tuna tacos just, I mean, set me free. Like I thought Jesus might come back tomorrow. 
I had the balance of sweet and salty and the way that was put together. I mean, I like avocado okay, and the, I just, I could take the avocado out and eat it. It was just amazing. Now, you come to me and tell me, you know, you did not like the yellowfin tuna tacos, you know. I mean, you can't tell me that. I did. I experienced it. It is my experience. You can't talk me off the mountain of what I experienced there. And I'm going to lead everybody I can to that experience. I mean, some of y'all are like, tonight, baby, we going to post. I don't know what he said, but I just got hungry and he needs to finish up quick. Um, you can't tell somebody. It's, it's, it's the experience. It's your story. It's the thing that we carry. It's the thing of value that God has given you. We want to get in these conversations about the dinosaurs and the age of the earth. And we're like, what am I going to say when they ask that? Redirect the conversation and just say, hey, I don't know, but you're walking through something that I walked through. I walked through divorce, but I can tell you in the, in the darkest moment of my life, in the, in the deepest, darkest hole that I was ever in, Jesus, the light of Jesus came in and pulled me out of that pit. And I can, I can tell you, and your life is different at that moment. When you encounter Jesus, it changes things. And that shows people have seen it. If you've truly encountered the son of God and he's, he's intersected your life, people know if they've known you for, for five minutes, maybe two weeks or a year, if you have related to them, if they know who you are and they trust you, they've seen your life. And they thought, okay, I remember them back circa 2008. Something dramatically has happened since then. And you have the opportunity to say, I met Jesus I was on the road to destruction and he changed my life forever. Nobody's arguing. They can't argue. Some people are frustrated. I remember talking to some a family member that we've known for a long time. She's like, every time we talk about this and I get into this thing, you start talking about your belief, like from, the, from your, the, your feet to your head, you just know. How can I argue with faith? Exactly. I believe with everything that I am that Jesus is alive from the dead. That right there is a whole different way of looking at defending ourselves. It's the irrefutable, it's the undeniable story when Christ is changing us. It's powerful. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, I love what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy because he's, he's always getting back to, as he's instructing them, to what happened to him. And he's leading Timothy, a, a young church planter who would eventually be one of the massive leaders of the church of Ephesus. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to how he says it who has given me strength, that considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a, and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. He's saying, I, I, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's saying to Timothy, I can't believe it came to me. I am the last person this should have come to. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Paul's putting it all together as he's talking to Timothy. He says, this is trustworthy. That deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But he says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he just starts going into a worship song, which I think is absolutely the best thing. In verse 17, he says, Now to the King eternally, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and all men. He probably raised his hands at that moment. 
He's saying, my life, because I was the worst, he's not saying because I was an awesome evangelist, this is why he picked me, because I, I was the best orator on the planet. I was going to be able to go in there, and they, they're going to send me in to Athens, and I'm going to be able to do the Greek poetry thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to do real... No, he says, this is why he rescued me. This is what he's doing in his pursuit, the hound of heaven. He, he chose the worst of sinners to show that nobody was too far. I mean, that's, that's Paul's crowning achievement to tell the world, I was the worst, and I don't care how bad you are, I was worse, and Jesus came to save you. No matter where you are, no matter the anyones and everyones that were leading into the unending ocean of grace, the Apostle Paul's pleading, saying, I was the worst of sinners. Man, that's powerful right there. He's telling his story. If you have a story of grace, you have a story of grace to tell. He continues his story. I love it. He's not spouting off theology, not making an argument for the age of the earth, the dinosaurs, or carbon dating. He goes and says, A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Now, if you go back to the original account of this, Ananias was like nervous about it. God came to him and said, hey, you're going to go pray for this guy. But he goes, I've heard of this guy. He kills people. I'm not, I don't know if I should go. And God says, go. what's funny is there's no argument. Like Ananias says all this stuff and gets kind of you know, weird and wimpy and says, I don't know if I should go. He's, God doesn't like coddle him and say, you can do it, Ananias. All he says, go back and look at it. He says, go. And Ananias apparently just goes. I guess that's what happens when God speaks to you. It's like, I guess I'm not arguing with him. And at that very moment, the Apostle Paul, his eyes, the scales fell off his eyes and he could see. I love just even the, the picture of that spiritually, what's happening as a, a 180 is happening in somebody's life. Because the Apostle Paul wasn't just giving them, he was giving them the, the account. He was just saying, I relate to you. I know who you are. They're, they're, I'm coming to you humbly to say, I know exactly what sin looks like. I was sinful, but then I encountered Jesus. You know, I was relentlessly pursued, but finally I was restored and my sight was restored. 180 and my life was, was never the same. I was blind and now, and now I can see. You know, it reminds me of, you know, what we read in, in John chapter 9, and, and I won't go into to all of it, but, but this is, when we talk about being pinned down and defending our faith and carrying our faith to, to the world around us, I just love this story because it's the one that the Apostle Paul is giving right here. He's basically saying, I was blind and now I see. My eyes are open. I was in this place of not knowing and understanding. I'm not better than you. It's just I'm anchored to a hope that I really believe changes everything. And in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. You know, it's, it's always weird. Jesus doesn't heal somebody the same way twice. Like he spits in the dirt you know, can you imagine just boom, and then he mixes it all up, makes a mud pie and slaps it on the guy's face. And he says, go wash in this pool over here. He washes and, he, and he's, he's healed of his blindness. He's born, born blind. Now, problem is what? He's doing it on the Sabbath and he's around the same kind of people that Paul's around. These Jewish leaders that are upset. They're, this is breaking and violating a law. Plus this guy's causing a ruckus. People are following Jesus and really not, you know, you know that taken with what's going on with the Jewish leaders anymore. So they're kind of upset, it's competitive. 
And so they're going to they're gonna pin him down on the Sabbath. So they have all these meetings. They bring his parents in. They bring the guy in say, you know, who is this guy? We all know he's a sinner. You know, were you really blind from birth? Was this a magic trick? You know, they're trying to figure it all out. And it goes back and forth. The parents come in. They're kind of scared going, hey, don't, don't blame us. Yes, he was born blind. You know, and they're, they're very, you know, and they go out. And then finally they bring the guy back in. And the guy's at this point kind of frustrated. Like he's almost like, you know, why are we going through all of this? My, I want to go celebrate with my friends. I was blind and now I can see. And so a second time in verse 24, they summoned the man who had been blind. And they said, give glory to God telling the truth or pinning him down saying, don't, don't lie anymore. We know this man is a sinner. And I love his response. Because it's irrefutable. You can't argue with it. Whether a sinner, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind. But now I can see. And if you're wondering what your defense is as a follower of Jesus. It is not, I need, to be a, I need to be a Christian for 20 years and then maybe I'll have enough knowledge to share my faith. Because the powerful testimony of a blind man that can now see, it, it, it drops people's jaws. I don't know about all of the stuff that you're saying, about what you believe or whether this is narrative or it's fake in the Bible or whether the creation story is seven days or 70,000 years. or I, I was blind. And now I can see. If you're wondering if Jesus changes everything, look at, look at, my, look at my life. Not in an arrogant way, but look, I, I had no shot. My life was, was torn apart and I'm I'm breathing. I'm thriving despite my circumstances because Jesus is real. He saves and nothing else does. I tried everything. I tried drugs. I tried alcohol. I walked down every road you could possibly walk down. And I was headed down the road to my death. And a light intersected me and opened my eyes forever to see the truth of how the soul is truly satisfied. I was blind and now I can see. Maybe it didn't happen in an instant. There's a lot of stories in here. Like, I don't even know when my encounter was. And, and you need to write your story down. You need to get in a journal and go, when did this happen? When did, what, what happened in my life? Was it, you know, did, did I just all of a sudden kind of drift into church life? And I never really, I never really had an experience with Jesus. I mean, that's probably an important thing to, I mean, just because you signed a card and gave it to a deacon, I mean, I wouldn't be, that'd be like my salvation. I signed it. We got to go find that. They don't know where that card is. When did you encounter Jesus? And maybe it was a process. Mine was. That's the way mine was like this. You know, I knew, knew God early on. And I feel like God was chasing me all through high school and college. And I can see the, the thread of encountering Jesus over the long haul also. And then a flash encounter when I was in my early 30s where I could say, man, I can see. Scales now are fully off the eyes. Know your story. Know your story of grace. Certainly, you should know the Bible. You want to get to know the one that's been chasing you. But man, do you know your story of grace? Because that's the story you want to tell. 
It's the, it's the argument that nobody can really argue with, that people will just nod their head and go, man, they might not believe immediately. They certainly didn't hear. Some did. And for, for somebody here that maybe you're hearing these things for the first time, maybe the Spirit of God's speaking to you. These are the moments where you might think it's just a, a sense or a brush on the shoulder of something and it's, it's the voice of God speaking to you. Come alive, my son. Come alive, my daughter. Rise from the dead and see. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are. Continually lead us to the truth. God, bring us back to the simplicity of being dead in our sins and trespasses and being raised to life in you from being blind and now fully seeing who you are and what you've done for us.